My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who, while attending college, initially joined ROTC in order to help pay for his college. After graduating, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Army and was assigned to Fort Hood. My guest left active duty after a few years, but decided to continue to serve his country in the National Guard, where he still serves today as commander of the Land Dominance Center at Fort Stewart, Georgia. My guest was involved in two combat deployments to Baghdad, where among his other awards, he received two bronze stars. The interesting thing about this week is that he has made the transition from military to civilian life three times throughout his career. And this has given him some insight to be able to provide and help veterans through an organization called Merging Vets and Players, who help men and women through mentoring and coaching to the highest levels of performance. My guest is also the host of the Hazard Ground podcast, which spotlights veteran stories for the public to see and hear. But he's also a full-time sports broadcaster out of Atlanta, Georgia, where he now resides. It's my pleasure to introduce Mark Zeno. What's going on, my friend? DJ Kelly, man, that's a, uh, when, when you get your resume read back to you, it's almost like, that just means I'm old, man. It means I've yeah. done stuff and I'm old, uh, but that <laughs> it was a very nice introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Uh, I'm so happy that you're here. We connected and, and talked and I said, I really wanted to bring you on and, and talk to you about it because as we talked before the show and stuff, I really enjoy the podcast you do. Right, let's take it all the way back to Long Island, New York, where you grew up, Italian and Irish Catholic neighborhood. Yep. Let's start there. Talk about the childhood, how you headed towards a life of service with, you know, the military and what you're doing right now outside of the military. Yeah. Well, for the record, I'm on the Italian side of that Italian and Irish Catholic neighborhood, <laughs> only the Italian side for the record. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, look, I, I had a, a fairly normal childhood like everybody else, you know, uh, and, and grew up playing a ton of sports and, you know, I wanted to be shortstop of the Yankees. And then Derek Jeter came along and took my job. So it worked out well for the Yankees. But that's what I wanted to be growing up as a kid. And, you know, when you realize you got to find a different path in life, uh, I, I was going away to college and I found a school that I loved in Loyola in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, kind of fit everything I was looking for. But it was expensive, man. It was a private school and uh, I needed a way to pay for college. And so, you know, my my stepfather, who was in Vietnam, uh, he was he's also a retired retired police officer. Um, in Long Island, but you know, he had mentioned ROTC and he talked to a couple of people about it. Now I was full disclosure. I was dead set against it. It was just not what I wanted to do, but it was one of those things where it's like, if you want to go to this school, this is the way, only way you can pay for it and help us help you pay for it. So I signed up for ROTC and I never, ever thought I would do anything other than my four-year commitment to get the hell out. Like I never expected 23 years later to still be in uniform. Um, so I thought I was going to be four and done means to an end. And lo and behold, you know, uh, after graduation, I get commissioned. Uh, I go to Fort Hood, Texas. I get off active duty three months prior to 9-11. 
and as a matter of fact, at the time, one of the reasons I, I left active duty wasn't even necessarily by choice. If you remember way back when the Clinton administration was downsizing the military and they had done that to the active force, they had done that to the lowest levels pre-World War II. Um, that's how low the active force was. You're talking about under 200,000 troops on active duty. Um, and so a lot of us are being sent to the guard to finish out our commitment and everything else. And so, um, I had left three months prior to, to 9-11. Of course, 9-11 happens. That was a game changer. You know, I mean, I, I, those are, those buildings were in my city and the, the shadow of the city that I grew up in. Um, I knew people in those buildings. I, I knew people, uh, who, who were on the ground at, at ground zero. You know, I mean, it just, I had so many connections to it, uh, on that day and, and that changed the game for me. Uh, and from that point forward, whether I realize it or not, like I, w I was in this thing because I remember saying, how can I help? What, what do I need to do? Where do I need to go? Let's just, you know, let's let's figure this out. And, you know, it took me uh, another, what, four years to actually get deployed uh, for the first time. But, you know, it, it was just it was the one thing that sort of kept me going back from war. And uh, the military over the course of, of 20 plus years, DJ has been been great to me. I, I really don't have any complaints. I've been very fortunate and very blessed uh, with a long career um, being, being afforded the opportunity to do a lot of amazing things and, and just be a soldier and be with soldiers at the ground level, man. I mean, that's what I love. I mean, I'm, I'm a Colonel now and you kind of get removed from it a little bit, uh, which kind of sucks, but you know, as, as a cop, you would understand it too. Like, you, you know, the desk jobs are great and you've earned them after, you know, 10, 12 years on the force, but there's something about pounding pavement and being on the street that, that makes you feel, you know, like a real soldier or like a real cop. And, and I think that's a, you know, a part that sort of binds us all together. Well, you know, and talking about hard work and stuff that, that you said before, I want to go back to your childhood again, because you picked a private high school to go to because yeah. you thought it gave you a better chance of going on with what you wanted, but it was it once again, a private school hard, you got to pay for it, things like that. Then you choose a private college to go to. Let's talk about your work ethic and where that came from, because I think it's paid off for you in spades, no matter what you've done. It has. It's the Catholic upbringing. That's what it was, DJ, to be honest with you. I went to a Catholic high school uh, and I went to a Catholic college. You know, it was one of those things. So when I was young, my parents split. Um, and I just remember thinking when I was 12 or 13 years old, I'm like, F this, man. Like, I just, I'm going to a different world. I'm going to a different life. Like, I want to be on a different path. And the best way for me to set my own path is, and we know a little bit more now than we did, you know, 35 years ago, but it's like, you know, got to get a great education, right? You have to actually have the best education possible. So I wanted that. Um, and my, my parents were very supportive of it. My mother was super supportive of it. And it was a challenge. And my grandparents had to chip in and help pay and everything. I mean, it was a, it was truly takes a village from that standpoint. But as a you know kid going into high school, I just wanted to put my head down and work. Like I just wanted to do the absolute very best I could, get the best grades I could, and try to figure out a way for me to be able to call the shots as opposed to being told what the shots were. Um, and, and that was really where the genesis of it started. Uh, and as I said earlier, a lot of that was, you know, sports related too. like, I wanted to go to a school that had high level athletics and, and, you know, gave you a shot to go play any sport in college, whatever it may be at, at the highest level possible. And, you know, again, that part didn't work out, but I think to your answer, your question, the work ethic never changed. It was always about figuring out, you know, a way to, to apply all my skills at, uh, at whatever I was doing, uh, to, to net the best result. And, and I, I was fortunate in that sense. And, you know, once I ended up going to a Catholic high school, you know, when you started searching out colleges and everything else, it became very easy for me to, um, look at whatever college I wanted to go to and say, okay, this is where I want to go. And this is going to help me get to the next level of where I'm going after that. 
when you talk to your parents about that, when you're in high school, you're talking about going to college and stuff. Are you telling them why you want to do it? Do they have an idea of why you want to do it? Uh, is it, or is it just kind of out there where you're just keeping, no. like you said, your head down and moving on? I told, I said, I said, I want to, be, I want the best education. And I want to go play sports. I want to play football and baseball. That's it. This is where I want to be. You know, if I have any shot of playing in college, I need to be at this school to go do that. Um, and so that was where my focus was. And, and I had a lot of drive as a young kid. Uh, and still to this day, I do, you know, I, I think that that one thing has been consistent, you know, but I, I always knew that uh, I needed to go to a place that pushed me and challenged me more than I guess the masses. And I don't know, I mean, at the risk of sound elitist to a certain extent, um, you know, at the risk of, of, you know, sounding like I was a snob, I just kind of knew that I, I wanted to be pushed by the very best. Well, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. I don't think it sounds elitist at all because when you look at it, knowing at that young age that you wanted to be pushed that hard and then going into college and, and doing the same thing. And you not only played sports, but you were captain of teams. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff that you did. Um, when you go to the military though, when you, when you start that ROTC and, and once again, we know it's just because you're saying, man, I'm doing this for the four years. I'm helping get college pay for and I'm out. When you go though, do you notice during college that you, start to get a feel for the military or you like it or that it, it's maybe a little different than you thought it would be and not just a paycheck. No, DJ, honestly, I had the worst attitude. I, I, I genuinely did. Like I was not in the right mindset to understand what I was doing. Again, it was very much a me ROTC was a means to an end to me. And I've always said this, that when I look back on my career, the lone regret I have, if I could go back and do anything over again, I would go back and be a lieutenant all over again and do it better because that same cocky attitude, like I was too good for this, like I didn't need to do this, that I carried through ROTC. Now, again, I was good at the military. Like I understood it. It fit well with my personality, right? Like I could handle all the physical stuff. I could handle, you know, hey, put me in front of a, a group of people and, and put me in charge and I can I could tell you how to get through everything and, and handle all the leadership parts of it. Yeah, you know, I felt like that part came very natural to me. But in the back of my mind, I just had a bad attitude as a, as a young kid uh, and wasn't really looking at this as an opportunity. I was looking at it as, as more of a, a roadblock, if you were like, I just got to do this and get over it and move on to go do what I want to do. And that, it, you know, early on, and again, I don't want to get too far ahead, but, you know, looking back at my time as a lieutenant, I did not embrace everything the way I should have. And I think it took me a longer period of time to really develop myself as a leader, as an officer, as, as somebody that people wanted to follow because I had a bad attitude and you don't realize you get so myopic to a certain extent. And I was just like, Hey, check the block, do the job as best you can. And, and, uh, and everything else will take care of itself. But you know, when you're trying to lead other people, that's not enough. And they pick up on your attitude and the chip on your shoulder and everything else. And, uh, and, and, in retrospect, you know, I was doing a disservice at that time to all those soldiers and, and, and all those sergeants and everybody that I worked with um, by not putting my heart and soul into it the right way. You know, hard lesson I had to learn and I'm, I'm better for it now, but that's like the lone regret I have about my career. I would have gone back and been a better lieutenant because that those were the foundational pieces you need. Yeah, I, I make it a point to sit down with the lieutenants whenever I can, uh, you know, go to lunch with them, grab coffee with them, grab breakfast with them and, and talk to them about what they want to do and where they want to go and make sure that they are 
guided in a path because you know it's one of those things i don't blame anybody else for my attitude as as a lieutenant but had somebody sat me down and mentored me and looked me in the eye and said you know you're you're you don't have the right mindset here you're 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 good at this like you can do this better than what you're doing you can be a, a star here or a stud whatever you want to say and if you really just embrace this as an opportunity instead of just something you need to do to kill time and even if you are going to get out of four years fine but be better than what you're being now. Like, had somebody said that to me, it would have resonated with me and would have certainly, you know, rung the right bell to make me change my mindset. Um, but that's what I, I want to do now with young lieutenants. I, I want them to understand that these are the, the most important steps in their career that they're going to take are right now because it defines the rest of their path. You know, I mean, it, re it really does. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, you know, my first deployment was one of these deployments where, uh, it wasn't like my unit was going. They needed, there was a, what they call an RFF, a request for forces. And they had picked me of all the people to do it. I can conspiratorize, is that a word? My conspiracy theory is, is that they picked me just to kind of get rid of me because they, they, you know, my attitude was, was crappy enough that it was like, okay, just send him, you know? Um, and it was one of those things that they put a unit together that I felt was designed to fail because they didn't pick superstars. You know, they gave me the barrel. Well, I gotta, I gotta bring up the point though. You're assigned to Fort Hood for your first, and and it's not a knock on on posts in general, but that's not the best place to go if you already have maybe a bad attitude towards the army. Uh, to send you there and to see everything that's happened in the past couple of years and stuff, that might not be the best starting ground for someone who already has a chip, like you said, on your shoulder. Well, and, you know, part of it was, too, um, you know, my displeasure with active duty um, was the fact that I was being told where to live. And I'm a New York kid stuck in the middle of central Texas, you know, stick out like a sore thumb, sore thumb, couldn't really blend in with anybody, didn't meet a lot of people that, you know, uh, grew up where I grew up and, and, and thought the same way I did. So uh, combine that with a, like an attitude of like, I really don't want to be here. And it sets itself up for not exactly, you know, thriving. Uh, and again, fully self-inflicted, DJ. Like, I don't blame anybody else for that at all. Uh, and so when I had left and gone back to the Guard, when they had sent us off back to duty and pushed me to the Guard, I went back to the Maryland Guard right where I went to school because I knew the area. I was comfortable. I had a lot of friends in the Baltimore, Maryland area. So I, I joined the Maryland Guard at the time and uh, and went there. But still, I think some of that that attitude sort of persisted a little bit um, and, and reflected in uh, it reflected in how I was viewed by other people. Now, again, I never got bad evaluations. I was always very good at my job, right? Like I was good at, at leading and, and getting the mission done. It was never about performance. It was always about personality. But part of your job as a leader is to be able to influence others. And if your personality sucks, <laughs> nobody's going to want to follow you. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So let's talk about as you come off, because you just brought up the Maryland National Guard, as you transition out, this is your first transition out of the military. Now, the reason I bring up one, two, and three is because a lot of people don't transition three times, but you really got to take a look. And I can only think that it helped you grow through each transition that it, it kind of metamorphosized. And then as you get out now as a full bird colonel, it'll be a completely different transition. So let's talk about your first transition and kind of how you're thinking about it. Because I have a feeling you're thinking like a lot of guys that get out at four years, like I'm going to do way better than this. There's cool jobs out here and things like that. So let's go over that first transition. 
yeah, I mean, that's what it was for me. It was like, okay, freedom, right? I get to go live the life that I want to live right now and I'll do the guard stuff on the weekends. But it was for me, it was just settling into a life that I felt like I wanted to live in a place that I wanted to live in around people I wanted to be around. So um, that transition was relatively smooth, uh, all things considered, because, you know, at that point, I didn't look at it as something was being taken away from me or I have to reintegrate myself into society in any way. I always wanted to be there regardless. So it was more fitting hand in glove kind of fit for me during that first transition. Uh, and, and, you know, naively, I, I never gave a lot of thought to sort of translating a lot of the skills that I had in the military and trying to apply them in the civilian side because I felt like I was just better at being a civilian than I necessarily was. Or being a civilian was was more of the challenge to me than being a soldier was at that point in time. So I settled into regular civilian life pretty quickly and pretty easily, got myself a job. Uh, I was not shortstop of the Yankees by that point in time, just for the record, um, in case anybody was wondering. That's no, the, there. <laughs> uh, regardless, but, you know, I'd gotten a job and I was, you know, living in the city and, and hanging out with friends and, you know, just kind of living my early 20s up the way most of us did at that point in time. Still, you know, again, um, 9-11 is still looming over us. You know, we're in two wars at this point in time. It's 2003 uh, in that time frame, um, 2002, 2003, by the time I had settled into uh, civilian life again. And so uh, I just, it never came into my mind that I would be part of it, honestly. I thought I was just going to, you know, again, do the guard thing. And then when, when it was time for me to go, it was time for me to go. Like it never got in the way. So I never bothered to think of it as anything that would derail my civilian life again. So I, I, I got to know, because I wrote down in my notes, what, because I, I've noticed in everything I've read about you and listened when you talk about it, what kind of regular jobs did you have? Because it, it seems like you might have been searching, but you still, with these regular jobs, it wasn't fulfilling the no. thing that you wanted to do. I, I mean, no. you, it, it seems like you kept chasing that rainbow. It's it, very true uh, and, and accurate. You know, I, I got a job in sales. Like, you know, I, I worked with a military recruiter who got people off active duty and, you know, looked for jobs. And like I interviewed at Frito-Lay and, you know, a bunch of these other companies, um, you know, to just get a regular job that, that looked for former military folks to come in and, and do regular, you know, nine to five work. Uh, and so I got a job in sales and uh, I worked for a company at the time called Cintas. You may be familiar with them, the, the uniform people and the bathroom services, mats, whatever it was. Uh, and yeah, you know, but you're right. I, I was not fulfilled. It was just a job. It was never a, a career. And in that, in having that job, that's when I sort of realized like, Hey, you know, I'm not really doing what I want to do. I'm working and I'm making money and I'm enjoying life as a single guy in his early twenties. But you know, this isn't what I really want to do with my life. Uh, and, and on the side, it was at that point in time, I started to work towards that where, because I had went to school for communications and broadcasting. That's what my major was when I was in college. Uh, so I knew I kind of always wanted to do that and be in the sports broadcasting world. So like if I couldn't play professional sports, I wanted to cover it. I wanted to be around it because I loved it. And so I started taking school, uh, you know, classes at uh, like the Columbia School of Broadcasting, you know, these schools that offer, you know, the, the, the classes and everything and, and then put you in job placement afterwards. And so I had started doing that. I had picked up a couple of small gigs, like doing like public address announcing uh, at local colleges, and even even some play-by-play -play gigs. Uh, in fact, in fact, my first job in the industry was doing play-by-play -play for my alma mater at Loyola for for college basketball. Um, and so, uh, 
the coach at the time, who's still a good friend to this day, I got to give him a shout out, Jimmy Patzos, um, was was bold enough to take a chance on me and say, hey, uh, you, you can call games for us. And so no experience, no, you know, uh, professional radio experience at this point in time. And, and he gave me a job and I'm forever, ever grateful to him uh, for taking a chance on me because he was the first person who took a chance on me that, that you know, again, set that path off for what I, I still currently do to this day. The question that comes to my mind, though, is is you you are in the military, and and i i don't want to I don't want to go over it and over it, but I feel like it it deems repeating. You you're in the military, and you feel like I'm I'm too good for this, whatever it may be, however you want to describe it. And you say I'm going to get out. Then you get out. You do the National Guard thing, and you're doing this job, but it's still not what you want to do. You're still looking towards communication. Is it? Is it getting at you in any way? I know we talked about that you start figuring out that's not what you want to do, but is it is it eating away at you kind of like, man, I've got to get this turned around somehow and get on the right track? Or did you ever at this time think this is never going to happen? No, I, I eventually knew that's what I was working towards. Once I started putting my mind towards this is what I want to do, and, and I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do within – the broadcasting world. I just needed to get, I knew I needed to get my foot in the door and just start doing it. And once I got there, I guess once, once the door opened up, I could look around and see where to go uh, from there. It wasn't exactly smart room clearing procedures, if you will, at that point in time to, uh, to use an analogy we both understand. But, you know, um, I, I knew I wanted to be in broadcasting and I was working towards that. At the same time, you know, again, I have this National Guard thing going on and uh, to take a step ahead, this is where it kind of, juxtaposes, you know, I get this first step, I get this play-by-play job, you know, I'm starting to make appearances on local radio stations, I'm starting to talk to these these radio, you know, management folks and everything else, and I feel like I'm about to make a breakthrough, and then all of a sudden, boom, hey, Mark, you're going on deployment, um, and it was like a total sort of gut punch, um, because I felt like I was right there, like I was so close to getting where I wanted to be in my civilian career and do what I wanted to do, and it was like, hey, you're getting popped for deployment. And I remember uh, I, at the time I was a captain, uh, I had been promoted to, you know, uh, shortly before there. And um, and I, I remember telling a colonel when I found out that I was the one being picked for deployment. And I remember sitting down having a conversation with him. I said, sorry, I don't want to go. I was like, I got, I, I'm right there. Like I have this civilian career. This is what I want. I, 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 <laughs> I can I, imagine I, how that conversation went. Well, in fairness, and his name was Colonel Kerry McIntyre, Lieutenant Colonel Kerry McIntyre, um, and he was very kind, very genuine, and very much a level-headed individual. Um, and I had spoken to him, and, and I just and I was trying to explain to him, like I'm right there, you know, this is what I want to do, and you know, uh, I, I, it's all going to fall apart, and you know, and I was putting myself and my own needs in front of the needs of the military and everything else, and not even realizing at the point in time, sort of eschewing myself from responsibility that I took an oath to do. And he sat me down and he just said to me very kindly, he said, Mark, I understand. You know, he said, I know where you are and I know how tough this is. But he also looked me dead in the eye and said, Mark, I know you'll do the right thing. Right? And that's the moment. That was the moment, like the mentoring of that moment saying, come on, Mark, you you know, like he's in that one sentence, he's really saying, you know what you're supposed to do. You know that this is what you signed up for. You know all these things. You know you're still here because you agreed to be here. No one's holding you here against your will. You could have gotten out already because I had passed my four-year mark 
by the time this had happened. My four-year mark was in 03, 04, whatever it was, and I got deployed in 05. And so I literally could have gotten out, but I chose not to because, again, like I said, the guard wasn't an inconvenience at this point in time. And when he said that to me, it was that moment, that crystallizing moment. And, and then I remember walking into the 06 colonel's office because, you know, rumor had gotten out that I didn't want to go. And I was kind of, you know, talking everybody's ear off because I'm a talker, obviously, about the whole thing. And I remember I walked into his office and he looked me in the eye and said, you know, do you want to do this? And I said, yes, sir, I do. I said, this is my responsibility and I'm going to take it. And, then, and what I really thought about more than anything, there were two prevailing thoughts after Colonel McIntyre had told me, Mark, you, you know what to do. You know the right thing. I said, look, I said, if I don't go, that means somebody else has to go in my place. That person could have a wife and kids and everything else. And what am I really leaving behind versus what they would leave behind? That's wrong. And two, I signed up to do this. I can't walk away from that. I, I, I couldn't in my, my heart walk away from that for my own personal selfish reasons. And I had come to the point and said, look, whatever will be, will be, you know? And I had talked to a bunch of people in the broadcasting industry, even some, some people in the guard who had broadcasting backgrounds and everything else. And they're like, look, man, you know, do this, this, and this, get your tapes together, carry them with you while you're over there. You never know who you're going to meet, you know, continue to work on your craft while you're over there. You can do all these things while you're there, while you're overseas, you're going to have some free time to be able to do this stuff and, and just keep your eyes on the prize of what you want. But in the meantime, do the job that you signed up to do. And so that kind of set me in the right mindset saying, look, I can still do this. I can still do what I want to do and then go serve my country and do what I, what I swore an oath to do and, and, do the job that I was assigned. And it was one of those moments, again, I just, I remember thinking, I have two options here. And this is kind of harkens back to what it was before, opportunity versus obstacle, right? I said to myself, I can look at this as an opportunity, grab the bull by the horns, do the absolute very best bleeping job that I can do uh, and give it my all for the next 12 plus months and do everything possible to do the best job. Or I can bitch and whine and moan the whole time, skate by and, and, you know, we'll see what happens when I come back. And when I put it in those terms, DJ, the choice was obvious. Grab the damn bull by the horns and let's go. You know, like it was, it was that simple. Once I got my mind right about the whole thing, um, I was able to understand what was right and what was wrong uh, and what I needed to do. And being a man of your word, I think that was the other part too. You know, again, I, I, I said I would do this. I need to hold up my end of the bargain. And what happened on deployment, which was crazy, was because that's still to this day, after 23 years, that deployment is the absolute pinnacle of my military career. Well, and that was going to be my next question was to ask you, it, it seems like there's a trend here that there's an, always an obstacle. Like I got to do ROTC. Well, I got to go to this private school in order to get into a good college. And then I get into this good college and I got to get ROTC to help pay for this college. And then I got to go do my four years to get this done. And then it always seems like that. So that's what I was about to ask was, when you finally decide in that crystallizing moment, do you ever look at it again as this is just something I got to get over or just take it completely? And that's what you said is you just grabbed it by the horns. Now, talking about that combat deployment, you said that was a pinna pinnacle of your career. But I want to talk about something that you have said about that. You said mistakes are opportunities for growth. You struggled with failure and rejection like many have. I just choose other paths. I learned that on my first deployment to Iraq. Let's talk about that first deployment because in what you said then, what you say now on this show, it seems like that changed you down to a base level, even as a person. Changed my life. Changed who I am. Made me the best part of the man that I am today. 
um, from the standpoint of I, and I say this all the time, if you laid out all the assignments in Iraq and said, Mark, you're going to Iraq, here are all the captain assignments. You can choose any one you want. I couldn't have picked a better one on my own. I got so damn lucky. I got so lucky. I got so blessed um, with the mission that I was assigned. Um, and it was, it was something that, that altered just my perspective on life, my perspective on myself and everything. And what ended up happening was, is that we were attached to special forces um, and we were working directly for Green Berets. And now all of a sudden, I'm walking into arena like, you know, this little cocky SOB that's been running around for five years in uniform with captain bars on now, this cocky SOB that I was. Well, I knew exactly when I walked into that arena, I'm like, yo, uh, hey, guess what? You ain't the hot dog here anymore. You better shut your mouth and do the very freaking best job you can because these dudes will eat you alive. And I saw that very early on. Like the tolerance for BS with those folks is zero, as it should be. Um, they are laser focused on mission accomplishment. They are laser focused on getting things done. And as I said earlier, like, okay, that I can do well. And I always did that well. And, you know, I was just given an opportunity to have a job I should have never had, to do things I probably wasn't trained to do, uh, and, and lead in a way that I was never challenged to lead before. Um, and what that assignment was, is I, I, it was twofold. Not only was I handling, because by trade, I'm a logistics officer. Not only was I handling the logistics for the American side of the house and making sure our soldiers, in this case, Green Berets, had everything that they needed to do the job, but they had put me in charge of building up and standing uh, standing up a support battalion for the Iraqi Special Operations Forces Brigade. So now I'm charged with this mission of, of creating this whole thing that's part of the whole deal that's going to get us home because, you know, the Iraqis are theoretically going to take over and I'm training this entire unit to be able to fight and survive for themselves. Not an infantry officer, not a, not a, not a guy who, who's spent a lot of time, you know, at trigger time as a, as the law guy it was, you know, I, I never had any of that training, but now they're saying, Hey, get these guys ready to fight and go. And so it was really, you know, and I did have the help of two other great NCOs who were both uh, 11 Bravo infantrymen. Um, and, and John McGraw and, and Eamon Walsh are, are were, were, you know, absolutely, uh, the perfect people for the job with me. Um, you know, they understood how to execute, but they understood how to talk to me and get me through things and care for me at the same time by allowing me to, to make the right decisions I needed to make. And there was a lot of good conversations with those guys, but, you know, and then on top of it, while, you know, most of the infantry in Iraq at that time is guarding gates and guarding prisons, they're saying, Hey Mark, yeah, we need you to drive, you know, two hours on the roads of Baghdad every day or three or four days a week. You know, you're running, I'm running these combat convoys back and forth, driving five, 6,000 miles over the course of the year on the streets of Iraq. Meanwhile, there are roadside bombs everywhere. It's the heaviest part of the roadside bomb era in the entire Iraq war. And I'm out there, you know, three, four, five days a week with my life on the line, um, trying to avoid getting blown up uh, and shot at and ambushed. Um, and so all these things that I had never had any training for, it, they threw me in the deep end. And that's kind of what the soft, the special operations mentality is, man, sink or swim. You know, and the only way, and DJ, I said that, I've said this a million times, I've said it on the hazard ground, I say it to everybody. The only way I knew I was doing a good job is because they kept giving me more work, right? In that environment, um, like I said, the tolerance for BS is next to zero, but also the tolerance for, for lack of performance is even less than zero. And the only way I knew that I was going to survive is that I kept doing a good job and I kept doing the job that they needed. 
And so this cocky kid was humbled immediately and quickly. And furthermore, the mindset shifted from, hey, I'm better than, than everybody. I, I, this is too easy for me. Now it's, I just hope I don't screw up. I don't want to let anybody down. I don't want them to think for one second that I can't handle this. It was exactly the environment I didn't know I was looking for, but exactly the environment that I needed because it was the way that they put, they pushed me. And it was also the way that I was able to relate to them as a very laid back guy. Like, you know, I, I mean, I, I have an irreverent, you know, sense of humor and I crack bad jokes and, you know, I mean, it's 2022. I don't really crack inappropriate jokes anymore, but you're not allowed to, but regardless, you know, back then it was a little bit of a different story, but those guys understood me. Like I understood them. It's work your ass off, work really hard, and we'll play hard along the same way. And they, everybody was on a first-name basis. There was no hats. There was no salutes. It was just go to work. And I understood that, and I could vibe with that, man. Like, it wasn't – I didn't need all the military pomp and circumstance of, you know, be in uniform, be the right way. I mean, you know, we're wearing baseball caps and sneakers. We're not wearing boots. You know, we're wearing shorts, you know, three days a week. Like, it wasn't about any of that military stuff that bothered me about the military as a young, cocky kid. It was just go out there and do a job and do it really well. Got it. Done. And I've held to that my entire career. I'm like, I don't care if you show up to work in a pink thong. If you do your damn job, I don't care what you're wearing. Do the job in front of you. Do it well. Do it right. So nobody else has to go back and do it again. All the other stuff to me is, is negligible. Like we, we can negotiate the rest of that stuff. But that deployment in and of itself shaped me into who I am. Now, did some bad shit happen on that deployment? Ooh, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to curse. Um, did some bad no, you stuff happen? curse. It's not. Right, no. Good. Well, then I can start letting it fly. Um, did some bad shit happen to me? on? Yeah. I mean, it, it happened to all of us. It, how could it not? You know, I've been rolled over IEDs. I've been shot at. You know, we've been blown up. You know, I've been stuck in positions where, you know, my, my asshole pinched up tighter than you can imagine. Like, you know, it's combat, man. That, that, that stuff happens. Um, and, 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 you know, to this day, I'm still living with some of that. But, you know, I, I think all of that stuff that, that I went through um, was trial by fire for me. Uh, and, and the fact that I survived it and I came out on the other side was the ultimate, you know, confidence booster for me that there's nothing that they can put in front of you that you can't handle. There's no job that you can't figure out. There's no, you know, and I was smart enough too to ask for help when I needed it. Like, you know, we're so proud sometimes, especially people in the army. They're so proud that they don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing. I was like, dude, I need help. Like, just tell me what, point me in the right direction. If I, I'll come back if I need more help. But, you know, um, I, at the risk of getting it wrong, I was smart enough to ask how to get it right. I'm like, hey, can you just give me some instructions here real quick? You know, and, and let me know what my left and right limits are. What about this? That, ask those questions and then send me on my way. And by the time I had gotten three or four months in to the deployment, like I was in, I was in fifth gear the rest of the way. You know, I was somebody that was trusted. I was somebody, I was somebody that they sought out for stuff. You know, like when, when Green Berets are walking to my office and these are the finest soldiers that, that America's ever seen. You know, some of these guys have, have been to hell and back three times and they walk into your office and they're like, hey, Mark, can, we, we need your help with this. Sure, no problem. I'll go get it. Done. Don't worry about it. Go do what you got to do. I'll get back to you. You know, like that was to me one of those things where it's like, hey, you're accepted. You know, you're one of us. So much so that at the end of that deployment, the colonel came down and offered me a spot to assessment and selection. He said, I think you should go. I, I think you can handle it. I think you can do it. And I wanted to do it. I, I, but there was a huge part of me that wanted to do it just to prove to myself that I could do it. However, it goes back to what I really wanted to do for the rest of my life and what my passion was. And I didn't ever want to disgrace any of it by not being able to give it the very best attempt that it deserved. 
And while I was humbled and honored that they even thought of me in that way, um, and I remember his name, Lieutenant Colonel Greg Swindell, um, I was so humbled and honored that they even thought of me as good enough to do that. I knew I couldn't do it justice because my heart was truly someplace else. And even though I wanted to do it and I wanted to be one of those guys and I wanted to be part of the, the club, I was like, you know what? Uh, this was good enough for me. Um, and and I learned so much on that deployment about myself and and the and the leader that I wanted to be and, and the officer that I wanted to be and, and how to to lead in combat and how to, you know, have people be willing to put their life on the line for you the way you will for them um, is something that I, I, I will cherish forever. Uh, and understanding what it really means to be able to do that because we all turn around and tell people, yeah, I'd lay down in traffic for that person or, you know, I'd step in front of a car, for, I, I'd walk in front of a moving bus. Those, those are nice words and the sentiments are great, but it's a whole different world when it's actually real and you actually have to do it. Uh, and, and watching people do that for you as you do it for them uh, and knowing that you have, you have inspired people and motivated people enough to say, hey, I'm going to do this. You stay there, sir. I'm going to do this. No matter how dangerous it is, it's like, wow, man. Like Now, now I know we've connected. Now I know we've, we've really got to a place where it, it goes beyond just service. It becomes love. It becomes a, a bond and a brotherhood and a sisterhood that you can't ever really describe unless you've gone through it. And I'm sure it's similar in the police world as well uh, as, as partners and, and, you know, teammates get together. I, I think there's a lot of similarities there. I, I won't pretend to speak as I know hundred percent, but I think you understand what I'm saying that you, you, you know what that feels like and what that means to you as a person. Yeah, I, I do. And you know, when you talk about all of that though, going back to what you said in the very beginning that, that you understood these guys that, that you were accepted in, don't you think that plays all the way back to your sports days? Yeah, um, but I, I, you know, I approached it differently. Like in my sports days, I was accepted because generally I felt like I was one of the better athletes there. Like my my performance spoke for itself. Like people followed because I was one of the better at. Like I, I was one of the better players, and it was easy. Yeah, but for but I mean, like team, there there is a goal to accomplish. There is your once the once you know the 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 tires hit the ground, you're not better than anyone. You are part of the machine that helps accomplish that mission. I I would think that you had to pull some of that forward to put you into the perspective that you got into. Right. But I, like I said, here's the difference. And I remember I journaled a lot during that deployment. In fact, 170 pages worth of journals. And the only page I ever shared with anybody was the very last page um, because I wrote down all the things that I had learned, that I had reaffirmed, that I had believed and everything. And one of the things that I learned was that the value of a role player on a team is so critically important because that's what I was to those guys. I wasn't the superstar. I wasn't the stud. Sure, I got to go on missions. I got to go on raids and pull security. I shouldn't have been there. had no reason to be there. Wasn't even qualified to be there. But they're like, Mark, come on. We need somebody. I'm like, okay, I'll go. Whatever. You know, like, but I wasn't the guy kicking down the door. I wasn't the guy doing any of that stuff. Um, I was the role player. And it was, it was a job that I learned to accept and relish because younger Mark didn't want to be a role player. He wanted to be the star, right? That's that cocky young SOB that wanted to be the star. And if I wasn't the star, I was going to be pissed. So in that, that's why I say I approach it differently. Like I learned about being a okay. role player and how pivotal it is. Because if you want a team to work, you can't have any team. You can't have two dozen stars. You can't have five stars. There's only one or two of them, right? There's only maybe three. But beyond that, everybody else has to take a back seat to the stars and start understanding where they fit in their piece of the puzzle. And I, I've said this routinely 
about anybody who's deployed. You know, everybody has their piece of the pie. I think we have to acknowledge some people have a bigger piece of the pie. Some people have a more important piece of the pie. Some people have pieces of the pie that, that are, you know, so critical to making a pie. And some people's sliver is very, very small. But guess what? That's your sliver. Own it. Accept it. Crush it. And do the very best job you can because you don't get the whole pie. You don't get the whole pie without that sliver. So however big or small your piece is, you need to own that piece and do it as best you can if that's how a team is going to succeed. So with all of that that you learned from there, this is your second transition when you come back out, right? Because you're you're going to go, uh, you're getting close to being full-time broadcaster, things like that. You come back out for your transition for the second time. You're a whole new mark. You've said it yourself. You matured. You think differently. Your transition now after coming out of combat, after seeing what all of that was for, because you really learned what all of that was for. How is this transition different? One, uh, I remember having a conversation with my mother towards the end of the deployment uh, I, on the phone, and she asked me what my plans were for when I got back. And I said, I'm going all in. I'm going to get a job in radio. I want to be behind the microphone. This is what I want to do. You know, and she asked me, she says, well, what if that doesn't work out? You know, what's your backup plan? And I said to her very plainly, I don't have one. I said to her, I said, do you think that Wayne Gretzky or Derek Jeter ever woke up thinking, well, if I'm not going to be a baseball player today, I guess I'll just go be an accountant. They, they never thought about failing. I said, I'm not thinking about if it fails, I'll know when it does and I'll figure it out then. But I'm not thinking about a back. I don't want a safety net because I don't plan on failing here. So I'm not going to. Uh, so I don't have a backup plan. I'll figure out the backup plan when I need one. But for right now, I'm going all in. Uh, and it was that sort of mentality. But the difference was, um, and, and this is a little bit you know, more, I guess, military related. I look back on it now. I, I don't remember seeing it then, but I look back on it now. Um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was messed up after that first deployment. I, I had been through some shit. I mean, you know, I had, uh, I couldn't go anywhere without a weapon um, when I had gotten back, even if it was just a knife. Um, and I remember we would go into clubs or bars or whatever, and you'd get searched at the door. I mean, I, I, I put a switchblade in, in the bottom of my shoe where they wouldn't check. I stuffed it underneath my underwear in between my, you know, my, you know, and left it there because I knew they weren't going to touch there. But I, I was paranoid to be anywhere without a weapon because hell for, for 12 plus months, you know, I had a weapon on me everywhere. I had two of them, um, you know, and, and it was, um, it was, it was part of my existence at that point in time, you know, loud noises, big crowds, all that stuff. I mean, I was, I remember, you know, having persistent flashbacks and everything else. And, you know, you go through that and you just sort of buried away and you just sort of move on because what did I do for the last 12 months? Next day, just go out there and do it again. Right. Next day, just go out there and do it again. There, there wasn't a, a moment to rest. Um, and there wasn't time to, to reflect and go, you know, this, this was pretty bad. Maybe I should take, take, take five here. Um, we didn't encourage taking a knee back then. Uh, and I, and I get it. I don't blame anybody else for that. I'm not, I'm not mad at the military for that. We know more now than we did back then. Uh, clearly we know a lot more, but you know, that part of transition, I sort of stuffed away, uh, and, and, and it hidden for a really long time. And I didn't really only unbox it again until recently when it became a necessity. Um, and so I quickly learned to compartmentalize and be able to just focus on the task in front of me, which at that point in time was getting my life back, getting you know myself regrounded again, and starting all over um, in a career that that 
you know, I badly wanted for so long. I, and, and no shit, DJ, like literally within four months, I was behind a microphone. I mean, I, every day, like it just, you know, I, I networked the hell out of it. I worked hard and, and, and made a, right, a lot of the right contacts. And lo and behold, man, uh, it, it just, it manifested itself for me. Well, is that when you went to WNAV in yep. Annapolis? Okay. Yep. So let's talk about that. It's your first daily radio show. Now you're at where you're at. You've got some baggage, but you're locking it away. You're finally where you've said you wanted to be your whole life. Do you feel fulfilled? At <laughs> What's that? I was doing news and traffic. Like okay. I wanted to do sports. All right. Yeah, you were on you were on the bridge to getting yeah. to where you were. Yeah. But I, I was close enough. Do you feel fulfilled at this point or do you still know there's more? No, I'm still chasing. I'm still chasing this because now it's shifted. Like and, and you know, life's a journey, right, man? I mean, like there's there's no way around it. So the cocky SOB who wanted to be shortstop of the Yankees now became the cocky SOB who wanted to be the biggest radio voice in all of America, right? Like that's just what, what you know, it's the way my mind worked, delusions of grandeur, whatever you want to call it. You know, I mean, it just, I, I didn't really understand how to figure out what worked for me in the business. I just saw other people at a place I thought I could get to on my own and it was all I was focused on. So I knew I had to take some steps and I had no problem with the grind and starting at the bottom and, you know, for lack of a better term, being the coffee runner, like, you know, doing all the, the, the jobs that nobody else wanted. And everybody told me sometimes you got to take a job in this business that you don't want to get a job that you do want. Hence why I'm doing news and traffic in Annapolis, Maryland, for crying out loud. You know, um, it's like one of those things where it just, it didn't pique my interest. I didn't love it, but I went to work every day and did it until the next job came along which was the one that, you know, really got me at least started in the sports world and where I wanted to go. Yeah. And it could be worse. It, it could be Baltimore. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I, ended <up. laughs> I, I ended up right back in Baltimore. So, and I say that as a joke to say this to you. So now you are in Baltimore though, and you're doing what you want to do. But the reason I ask if you're fulfilled, because there's still something looming on the horizon. And I don't know if you saw it coming, if it even, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. D did you have any, after this first deployment, you, you've worked your way up to what you're doing and now you have another combat deployment looming on the horizon. It's gotta be an even bigger punch in the gut than the first one was. It was, but it wasn't. It's like, okay, here we go again. You know, when they told me I was going, I remember I didn't tell my mother, I didn't tell anybody. I kind of kept it to myself you know, I, there was part of me that was, again, delusional thinking, eh, maybe they'll pull the plug on it. You know, maybe we won't have to go. You know, maybe, what rank I, are you now? At this point, I'm a major. Okay. Uh, and and so I was like, yeah, you know, like Iraq's winding down. They keep saying they're going to get out of there. Just, maybe they'll pull the plug on it. No, they never did. And, and I was fully established at this point in time. I had a radio show every day. I was doing play-by-play. -play. Like I had you know, without sounding too arrogant, like I had owned the city of Baltimore by that point in time. Like I, I loved it there and, and they loved me. It was, it was a blast. You know, I mean, I was, I was covering baseball games and football games. I mean, it was just, it was doing, it was almost everything I wanted. Like I granted, I wanted like the number one seat and the number one chair in the city. And, you know, but I, I was on the biggest station, the best sports station there having a show every single day, you know, and, and going out there and, and being able to just cover sports for a living. And I loved it. Um, and so when I had found that I was going, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, um, 
I didn't fret. You know, at this point in time, I knew that I wasn't saying no, right? I, I wasn't putting up a fight. You know, this was the job and, and, and that's fine. Um, it, it was just a way I was more concerned about how I was going to handle my civilian employment because the one hiccup here is, you know, I think a lot of people know this, that, hey, you're guaranteed your job back with your seniority and your pay and everything else. That's all true unless you are a contract employee. Because what happens is my contract can be voided at any point in time, right? Like, I, you know, the contract isn't worth the paper it's written on. Um, and they didn't have to honor giving me a job back. They didn't have to honor the position. They didn't have to honor any of that based off the fact. And I went through all the, and I, and I asked them, like, yeah, there's nothing as th that we can do for you. Like, it's called ESGR, Employer Supportive Garden Reserve. You know, those are the folks that if, you're, if your job tries to screw with you, you call them up and they get legal people involved in everything else. They're like, yeah, we, we actually can't help you. We can't do anything for contract employees because if your contract <laughs> runs out, they don't have to honor it, right? Like you right. fulfill the contract, right. they fulfill the contract. There's, there's nothing for them to give you back. So I knew there was a little bit of a danger there. You know, and I had the conversations with management. I mean, I, are you guys going to give me a job? Yes, Mark. Yes, 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 yes. When I did get back, and I want to get too far ahead, but they, they kind of made me start at the bottom again, which I was a little ticked off at. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where I didn't fret about it as much this time around. Um, I was more sort of, I think part of me was more like, um, one, I know the job, whatever I'm going into is going to be nowhere near as good as the one I had last time. Right. <laughs> it, it just was never going to be as fulfilling. Um, and there's no way it could have been. Um, and two, it was like, you know, what am I, you know, how much better is this going to make me? Um, you know, what am I going to learn on this deployment that I didn't already sort of learn on the last one? And, uh, you know, obviously I was concerned a little bit about my, my future in the civilian world, but, um, you know, this was one of those deployments that was just needed to get it done. You know, um, I, I was going to treat it the same way I treated the first one, grab the bull by the horns, attack it, you know, with, with a, you know, ferociousness unknown to mankind and, and let's see what comes out on the other side. I figured it worked for me once it would work for me again the second time. Well, and you were attached to 25th this time, right? Yeah. Yeah. 25th. Which I that that was my first active duty and it was 25th so um what was when they went over there this is going to be a completely different kind of mission your first one you're working with special forces you're training people you're setting up uh, very unconventional things now you are a complete big army 25th as you go over there as you go over there how does your job change how does this deployment change and how do you change i'm working on division staff um which you know as a major sucks because everybody's a, a lieutenant colonel or a forward colonel or in this case a general running around. So you may as well be a private at that point in time. Uh, you have absolutely no pull with anybody. Uh, you're the low man on the totem pole and, and it's just a different world. I mean, you have to remember this second deployment was all of 2011. And what was frustrating was, is we went there to leave. Like that was the whole mission. You're going to go there and we're going to shut down Iraq. And I'm, and, and the whole time I'm sitting here thinking, if that's the incident, what the hell are we waiting for? Let's move our ass. And let's get this. Let's get out of here sooner. What are we waiting for? Oh, because we have to stay until December. Like, I mean, you know, it was it was almost maniacal in that sense. Uh, and and there was a lot of power struggles, you know. And I remember being in a lot of meetings, going, "Guys, we're leaving. Like, what what are you trying to build up things for when everybody's? Oh, well, we may stay. When I tell you, DJ, there were 06s, I can remember with like like they were like cats with their claws in the rug, hanging on, not wanting to leave. Um, and, and I, I suppose to a certain extent, I get it. The money is really good. Uh, maybe some guys didn't like their home life and their spouses and didn't want to come home. I don't know, 
but um, there was there, there was this you know constant tug push pull force of of uh, people who were trying to you know stay the course, and then there was a group of people like me. Guys, the mission is to leave. Let's just leave, right? Like I understand we have a job to do, and when we have to be here, but like you know, at the end of the day, we should all be on the same page about where we're going. And there was just a lot of consternation going back and forth. Um, and again, I, 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 a lot of this is self-inflicted. A lot of the, the, you know, I don't want to, I didn't have issues with anybody, but sort of a lot of the, you know, um, just friction, if you will, was me dealing with all these buttoned up, you know, 05s and 06s. And here I am, this, this guy who comes from this unconventional background has worked in operations for the last five years of his career um, and and been doing a whole different thing of, as opposed to just sitting at division staff every day, you know, wondering when lunch is and, and you know, uh, wh what movie are they showing at the theater? Like, it's just like, it's a whole different world. And so, you know, I felt a little bit out of place in that sense. Um, but I still wanted to do a really good job, right? Like I still wanted to, to work with as many people as I could and do it. And, and whatever opportunities I got to go outside the wire, I took them um, because it was just a chance to sort of feel, for lack of a better way, feel alive again, you know, feel like you're in the fight um, because I get it. You can feel like you're not in the fight when you're sitting on a base all day long eating ice cream and, and having cookies in the chow hall. Like it's not, it's not exactly a rough existence other than the weather and the heat and, you know, other, well, I should, the only rough existence was that we got mortared every fucking night. Like it was ridiculous. They knew we were, the enemy knew where we were. They knew we were leaving. We had slowed down all kinetic, most kinetic operations at this point in time. We were not in an offensive position at all. And every night. And, and the hardest part was, you know, the, the hardest fear was the lack of control, right? Like don't be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But how do I know? if that's the wrong place at the wrong time. Because they don't know what they're shooting at. They're not aiming at any. You just don't want to be standing in the wrong spot where some guy who has no aim ends up getting where you are. And that happens. He's, He's only got to get lucky one time. Right. I mean, you know, you got to keep dodging these things. And so, you know, I mean, there were nights where literally we'd get mortared for like five to seven minutes straight. They did. They just kept coming in and landing. You know, shrapnel's going off all around you, and you're, you're in this bunker knowing that, listen, you know – I get the fact that this is a bunker, but if one of these things lands on this, guess what? I'm not walking home on my own here. So um, that part was, you know, again, one of those things where um, it grinds on you over the course of, of a 12-month deployment. And that constant state of alertness at every noise, you know, makes you jump a little bit. I'll never forget. Um, so they had this thing called, it's called, it's called a JDAM. I forget what it stands for, but essentially it put this whole sort of radar out over the base and whenever incoming would come in, it would recognize it. It set off an alarm, and then it had a machine gun on top of it that would shoot the mortar coming in or at least try to prevent it from landing. You know, it worked like about 30% of the time and hit the target maybe about, you know, 40% of that 30%. So what are we really doing here? But, you know, um, the horn that would go off to let you know that incoming was coming. So, like, you'd go through the same thing. That horn to go off might be 3 in the morning, hop out of my bunk, jump out the front door, sit in the bunker, and just wait and hope for the best, Right. Um, that horn is so eerily similar. Like if you have the iPhone, that alarm that goes, ar, 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 like that's exactly, I'll never forget, man. When I got back to work, <laughs> one of the guys at work had that phone, had his phone on his desk and that was his alarm or his ringtone or whatever it was for a text message. That shit went <laughs> off. DJ, no shit. I dove underneath the fucking desk and, and I naturally just dove right under the desk without even thinking. Uh, and I popped back up and he's sitting there staring at me like, 
the hell did you just do? And he's laughing his ass off at me. I'm like, sorry, uh, job hazard, you know. Um, but, you know, that that's kind of what you dealt with in that point. It's completely different. Um, and, and I don't ever like to compare the two because I don't think anything will compare to what I was, you know, had the opportunity to do in my first one. Uh, I think we still did some good work. I think we still did some some positive things, you know, hearts and minds at that point in time, right? Um, and and we were able to, to to bring everybody home safe, and I guess that's the, the most important part. So this is a transition for the third time now. Now, yeah. in everything that you said about this and, and the job that you had and what you did, there has to be either some jadedness in you or... I don't want to say it took you back to who you were in the beginning, but there has to be some lingering stuff off this. Well, lingering in what sense? You mean just like like PTSD kind of lingering? Or no, you talk- well, of course that, but yeah. and we've already talked about that a little bit, but there has to be where you, you know, you're thinking, I'm doing this job, you don't fight it going back over there, and then you get over there and it's just uh, you know, a mind-numbing job. You don't really think you're accomplishing anything like you did on the first one. So there has to be a little of, there has to be something going on in your brain. Like, man, I stepped away from everything I was doing to do this shit. Yeah. I mean, th- there was that, you know, and, and that led to a little bit of bitterness on the deployment itself. It's like, man, you know, like I, th- this isn't really, you know, winding my clock the way I want it to. There's not like a, a net positive that I'm really gaining from any of this. So that part was a little bit frustrating, but i tell you when I got back, you know, at this point in time, it was one of those things where, um, I, from a military standpoint, like I was like, screw this. I want 05. I want to be Lieutenant Colonel. I want 06. Like, you know, like I I am, I'm all in at this point in time. I'm pushing forward as as hard and as fast as I can in my military career because I'm tired of getting being told what to do. Now I want to start calling some shots of my own. You know, that's kind of what, what I wanted to be in those positions where I got to be the guy in charge. And that, that deployment sort of, you know, reaffirmed and reinvigorated that, Hey, put your head down and start focusing on what's next in your military career so you can go as far as you you want in your career before it's all over you know i i think that was what what i took from that deployment and the transition out getting back into the civilian world was a lot easier but again in retrospect there was a lot of stuff i just packed away and compartmentalized and and left uh in a box for a really long time that i never bothered to deal with um that ultimately again was was the wrong thing to do in retrospect but just sort of you had so much practice at it by this point in time it was it was almost part of decompressing and, and reintegrating into society. Well, take all that stuff that you have and just leave it over there. It'll be fine. It's not going anywhere. Uh, leave it in storage, and, and when we need, we'll get it when we need it. You know, uh, kind of mentality. Uh, but you just you know go right back to work. And I was I was fortunate. Like I said, the radio station did bring me back on. Um, they made me start from the bottom up again. They they did not give me a show full time like I had last time, and uh, that that part was a little bit frustrating. Uh, definitely a little bit bitter about that, but. You know, again, um, some of this is still my my not having the right perspective about where I am, who I am, and kind of where I fit in my career. That whole role player mentality again, I didn't embrace that when I got back into the radio world. I still wanted to be the star, right? And really, in reality, all I had to do is go back to that little lesson that I had learned about being a role player. Fill your role, do your job on the team, okay? Do the best job you can, and that's where the reward is found. I've learned that now, <laughs> um, but you know, back then I was still still chasing the carrot, man. So why do you think that happened? Why do you think you reverted back to that? Old habits die hard, I suppose. But I, I you know, again, uh, there was a sense for me that I, I felt like I was capable of so much more. 
Like I, 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 I wanted the challenge of being in the number one seat, right? Like unless you're the lead dog, the view never changes. I wanted to be the lead dog. I wanted to see the view from up there and, and, and be the one pulling the sled because I knew I could handle it. I felt like I was being underutilized and underused and my skill set was being underused. And that was, that was frustrating for me. There wasn't a challenge in the job that I was doing. Um, and, and, you know, I wanted more. Um, and, and some of that was selfishly, but some of that also was look, man, I, you know, there's a lot more I can do. Let's like, let's put me to work. You know, let, let, let me, let me, let me find a spot here or give me a spot here where I can start to make an impact, a positive net positive for everybody, um, by being in a spot where I can succeed. So, I think it's a little bit of both those things. So it's it's at this point where you decide to move to Atlanta, correct? Yeah, well, the job moved me there. The, the The company I'd worked for at the time, it was CBS Radio at the time, called me up and offered me a job in Atlanta, uh, and I immediately took it. It was my own show. It was it was in a bigger market. It was more pay. It was all the blocks that you check for when you want a promotion. Like this was it, you know. So uh, as soon as they called and offered, I went and flew down to Atlanta, met with the management team, and you know, uh, it took me all of like 24, 48 hours to talk to my fiance at the time and, and, uh, um, and say, Hey, let's do this. And, and, you know, three, oh, not even three months, three weeks later, I was in, I was in, uh, Georgia full time. I mean, she had to stay back and finish up a couple of things and she didn't come down for another couple of months, but, uh, at the time, but you know, um, it happened that quickly. Are you glad of everything that's happened now? When you look back, like you said, when you first got back and you were you, you thought you were being under underutilized, when you got the call to come down, kind of to the bigs, and um, they're telling you all this, did you did it all come together? Like, okay, now I see, now I see that everything is moving in place that it's supposed to be. This is the pace that I'm going at. Or do you still try and push that time envelope? No, I'm still pushing the envelope. I mean, so initially yes i was i was very happy i was very content where i was and doing what i was doing and you know at one point within the first six months of being on the job um six seven months of being on the job uh or i should say within the first year i think i had the highest ratings on the station um and and the show was killing it it was crushing it uh and they had made two other changes and i was working at night i was doing like seven to eleven at night and they had made two other changes to the daytime lineup at that point in time. And I wasn't selected for either one of them. And I'm like, what more do I need to do? Right. What, what I've got the highest ratings of the station. How are you overlooking me for a bigger, better role on the station during the day? You know? Um, and so I, I got passed over and it, it foolishly, uh, I got bitter about it. I did. Um, I got really bitter about it. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where, um, that bitterness uh, led to a bigger lesson that I would learn ultimately when I was let go from the station. Can we talk about that? Because that's exactly where I was pushing this to. No, absolutely. So there's a couple of things that were going on at that point in time. Um, so they had, they had me originally brought me down there to work nights, right? Seven to 11. And that's what I had signed up for. Well, because the station also had Monday night football, Thursday night football, they had the Atlanta Hawks. So that like, during the non-summertime from basically November all the way through to, you know, February when football ended, but then all the way through to June when, or, or May when basketball had ended, you know, I was being preempted off the air by basketball or football or whatever else was going on. So they needed to figure out a way to sort of justify my salary and justify my work. Well, the first year they did that, they made me go cover the games and bring some sound back and everything else. I'm like, fine, it's not great. It's not ideal, but whatever. 
Then they decided to do a little bit of a, a little bit of a bait and switch with me and said, well, now we want you to work from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. every night. And I'm like, what? Like, that's not what I signed up to do. It's not what I came down here for. But again, the contracts in radio aren't worth the paper they're written on. Um, so they don't mean anything. They basically got you by the short hairs. There are very few people in the industry you realize that can call shots um, and have leverage. I wasn't one of those folks. <laughs> so uh, at the same time, you know, uh, my wife and I at the time had, had given birth to our twins. Uh, I had two infants at home um, and she had gone back to work. Um, and so now I'm, I'm charged with trying to figure out how to take care of these kids, you know, and then I have to go to work in the middle of the day or, you know, like late afternoon and she was still at work. So, you know, we're opting for looking for nannies or daycare, whatever it is. In the meantime, you know, I'm operating off three, four hours sleep a night, if that, you know, cause she had to go to work by six, seven o'clock in the morning. I got home at 3am. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm falling apart here. I'm breaking, you know, like the, the stress of the whole thing. My marriage is falling apart at the time, you know, and I'm in a really, really bad spot. And I had went to management. I told them, look, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I, I'm, it, it's killing me. You know, my life is falling apart right now. This is not what I signed up for. It's not what I, I need you to help me. Please help me. You know, you got to get me out of this situation. I can't do this anymore. And management had looked at me and said, okay, we'll help you out. Why don't you give us a couple ideas of what you want to do? Sent back an email with a couple ideas I want to do and then complete silence. They never addressed it again. Never, 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 never addressed it again. So uh, ultimately what led to my first dismissal, and I take full responsibility for this, um, even though it's not a sin that is worthy of being fired, you can make anything a sin worthy of being fired, right? If you want it to be. It was 2.40 in the morning and I had replayed a segment of my own show that I had done at 11 o'clock and replayed it at 2.40 in the morning. Um, and because I was exhausted and I couldn't keep my head up anymore, I went home uh, you know, 20 minutes early from the show. So um, one of the managers who was on the West Coast was listening and heard it. and was like, I thought I already heard this segment, this, that, and the other. Again, uh, people in radio, for those who don't know, they replay segments all the time. They replay, repurpose audio all the time. It's not this, this massive sin, but under the, under the premise of, hey, you don't get to make programming decisions like that without permission from the program director. Yes, that is 100% true. Uh, it was a decision I made on my own. Nobody else did it. They are 100% correct in saying I did not have the authority to make it. That is true. Even though it's done on a routine basis, I did not have the authority to do it. Ultimately, they said, okay, we're going to part ways. And so I got fired uh, and I was devastated. I was, I was beyond um, beside myself. I was mad at myself. Um, I, was, I was upset that I had, I had showed a lapse in judgment. You know, for somebody who in combat had made very good choices, sometimes luckily, <laughs> but for somebody in combat who had, who had made very good choices and showed a lot of prudence, um, uh, this was not, it was not a smart choice on my part. Um, you know, simply put, related to a military sense, you know, you delegate responsibility, you don't delegate authority. I didn't have the authority to make the decision. If somebody had done that to me and I was their commander, I would have the same reaction. You don't get to make that decision. Right, wrong, or indifferent, you don't get that decision without my approval. So I understood where they were coming from. I didn't fight it. I didn't make excuses. I owned up to it immediately as soon as they confronted me on it. I wasn't about to try to, to make a bigger scene out of it. I stood there and took it because I believe that's what you should do. You take accountability and responsibility. That's what leaders do. Uh, and so I was let go and I, and I, and I walked away. Um, you know, at the time, you feel like it's the end. Your world's crashing down on you. You don't know what to do next and everything else. Like this career that I had worked for, I just pissed down the drain. Um, you know, long story short, six, seven months later, 
I get hired by another station in town. And that's really when it had flipped for me to get back into that position of, Hey man, you know, you're lucky to do what you do every day. You love doing what you do every day. Stop chasing after this thing that in reality, it's not that it's not attainable for me or it's not that it's not possible for me because I, I definitely have the skill set to do it, but you know what? You're just not in that space. Like you're, it's not a job that anybody's going to offer you right now, not because you're not qualified, but for a variety of other reasons, you're not in their, their scope of people who they want for this job. And so guess what? Now I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm back behind the radio again. I'm at a smaller station. I didn't care. I was so happy to be behind them. I was so thankful for a second chance. I was so grateful to be able to just do what I love again. And that's really when it flipped for me. It's like, you know what? You don't work a day in your life. Stop trying to work more than you need to work. <laughs> right? Like I, I was, I finally, it, it finally clicked for me that I was, I was just happy being the role player on the team here in Atlanta, whatever it was. I, I didn't need to be the superstar. I didn't need to be, the biggest radio voice in the country. I'd still like to be, but you know, again, I don't, I don't get out of bed every day with that as my goal. I get out of bed every day of doing the very best I can at the job that I have to do. How was it that you went about fixing? Cause you said my marriage was falling apart, all this kind of stuff. So you're doing a lot of introspection as all this is going on for that five, six months. How do you fix kind of from the ground up your entire life back? Well, uh, unfortunately, the marriage didn't get fixed, so that part had happened. Um, and you know, I, I think it was one of those things where you know I, I've always sort of challenged myself to uh, look inward and have that introspection and be able to figure out where the mistakes you made were, um, you know, and, and and look for ways to just constantly get better and evolve. Um, and I, I think I was forced to do that. And and the downtime in between jobs, uh, radio folks will tell you this six months feels like a lifetime when you're out of the business. Uh, when you're not behind a mic, you're dying, right? Because you, you've, you've grown to just have this platform, you know, where, uh, you know, people are listening and your words matter and your thoughts matter. And, you know, it's, it's an ego stroke, but you know, part of it, that's just part of the job, right? Everybody in, in radio and television has a little bit of an ego. I do. I don't think it's big by any stretch of imagination, but I love talking to people and giving out my thoughts, no matter how large or few people hear it. So when you're on the sidelines, it feels it, it's a slow death, man. Um, it, it, you're, the life's getting sucked out of you. Uh, and so when you get the opportunity back, you know, you, you're, you're grateful just to be able to do it again. And, and you, you approach it with a different mentality and you know, hey, and I had learned very quickly, I'm not going to do things that are going to jeopardize any position I have, right? Like, I, again, I go back to it. I, I knew it was wrong what I did. Um, and I knew that there was a possibility I can get in trouble, but I, I didn't care. I was in such a bad spot mentally. Um, and I was such a bad spot just in general, um, physically exhausted that I didn't care. And that blinded my judgment. Um, and it was, it was, a, it was a vow I, I swore never to do again. And, and I didn't, and I have never repeated that same mistake. So, um, putting it all back together, just, it took, it took a lot of time. I really had to devote a lot of time to me. Um, and, and, picking myself up off the carpet and, and starting from scratch, you know, rebuild all the pieces again. And in reality, you talk about lessons learned, you know, you, I've, I've done that in the military. I've had to do that in the military. I've had to start all over again several times and you know how to do it. You just got to do it one step at a time. Every old cliche you can think of one foot in front of the other, all that. I mean, it's, it's, that's how, 
you sort of reinvent yourself and rebuild yourself. But you know, there are certain junctures in that rebuilding. Well, I need a different piece here, right? Like I need a different brick here. The one I used last time led down this road. I don't want to go there again. Give me a different brick. You know, let's 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 try a different foundation style or whatever it may be. If whatever, however, I can uh, make this analogous for you. But you get the point. So uh, that was a big part of it. Well, let's talk about as you kind of get this radio life back together, you also start merging, you, you start working with merging vets and players. Um, and they actually ask you to be, I think the word was like a director of Atlanta, correct? Program manager. So um, merging vets and players had come here. Like, so here's the other thing. I had, you know, at the same time started the hazard ground. You know, right when I, right towards the very end of my tenure uh, at the first radio job that I was fired from, I had started the hazard ground. I'd started that for two reasons. One, um, I wanted to tell great stories because I thought there were so many of them out there. Um, and, and I've told the story of, it, if, if you're familiar with the Battle of Takagar, not many people are. I don't understand why it's never been a book or a movie that everybody knows about. Um, but essentially, just, I always try to tell it, it's like Black Hawk Down on top of an Afghanistan mountain. Um, in, in 30 degree weather and snow, <laughs> not Mogadishu. So you, you have 19 Rangers stuck on a mountaintop fighting for their lives for the better part of 20 hours with nobody to come and help them. Uh, and so uh, it's an amazing story. And I remember reading about it. Uh, it was actually during drill weekend. I was in my armory uh, and in my armory here in Georgia, they have like all these pictures of the National Guard, these paintings, and they all tell a story. And there's a story about an Air, Fo Air Force medic from the Kentucky National Guard, um, who Kentucky Air Guard, who was in the battle of Takagar helping keep Rangers who were on, on the mountaintop alive, you know, running back and forth and getting IVs in the middle of gunfire and everything else. I'm like, why does nobody know about this? Like we know American sniper, we know lone survivor. Like we know all these things. Why, why is this not a story that's told? That was kind of like the idea. I'm like, somebody needs to tell this story. Okay. I'm going to tell this story. So I created the hazard ground to start telling stories like that because I felt like everybody needed to hear them. Um, and the other reason I did that is because I always felt like I needed something else to fall back on. Like I needed, a, you know, in the, in the, radio industry, you know, this is when podcasts were still at the very beginning. They don't, they're not where they are now, but I wanted something else that was sort of like, for lack of a better term, notorious about my work. Right. And this was related to the military. Nobody was doing anything like this at the time. Um, and, and it was, it was a niche market that I really felt that I could crack into and really sort of make my own. So I was doing that. And through the hazard ground, I had been connected with Nate Boyer, who started merging vets and players. Uh, he was one of the, I think he was the 11th guest on the show. And this was before he did the whole um, Colin Kaepernick kneeling thing before he had gotten involved in any of that. He was on the hazard ground. So um, I've had a, I had a long relationship with Nate. And then I ended up getting connected with the, with the idea that they were opening up an Atlanta chapter. And I, had, I had just through the hazard ground, I had met so many people from interviewing so many people that I had bumped into the guy who was going to run the Atlanta chapter. And so it had started in December, 2018. And I went there just as a regular member, like everybody else um, in December of 2018 and, and just started doing the program and, and working with everybody there. Um, and over the course of the next year and a half, um, you know, I was, I was a big part of MVP here just as a member. Then, you know, COVID hit and everything else. Um, and, you know, we had so many changes MVP itself had so many changes. I had stopped going basically uh, for the better part of 18 months. And then Nate eventually came to me. They had enough turnover here in Atlanta. I lost a couple of people. Nate picked, uh, you know, said he was going to be Atlanta, asked him to meet me for lunch. And I met him and he asked me to take over the Atlanta chapter. And uh, again, long story short, I said, yeah, hey, look, I'll do it on an interim basis. I don't know if I want to do it full time, but I'll do it on an interim basis. 
you know, at least until you can find somebody else, I'll help you out, you know? Um, and then literally within a couple of months of taking the job, like I fell in love with it. You know, I, I fell in love with the people that I worked with at MVP and, and, um, just being back, even though I'm still in the guard, you know, I'm still around soldiers, but being able to help veterans and being able to impact their lives is ultimately extremely rewarding. And, um, you get a different perspective on it, right? And, and what's the biggest lesson you learn in all this? I think empathy. And, and that's the one thing that we all, God, America needs more of it now than ever. But, you know, when, when, you, when you start to learn empathy and you start to, to understand that other people deal with things in different ways that are not the way that you deal with them or want to deal with them, and you just sort of give them the grace and the courage to be able to deal with whatever they're dealing with on their own terms, um, it can be pretty powerful. And it really makes a, it makes for a very, you know, uh, unique thing. And so, um, that was part of the real joy of doing MVP every week is being able just to, to be around people who want help and just want to tell you what's going on in their lives, you know, learn to listen, learn empathy and learning to listen are, are things that we don't do enough of. And from that standpoint, you know, I, I get that lesson every single week. Somebody always has something to say that always reminds me of, guess what, man, uh, you're having a bad day. That person's having a worse day. Trust me. <laughs> so uh, that that part is always is always good perspective. Well, I think it's interesting because if you look at it, it's a complete dichotomy of what you do. You talk into the microphone. You talk constantly, and now you're taking that back seat and just listening. So it's got to be a changing thing to you. Can we talk about some of the specifics that MVP does with these guys? So. You know, MVP takes veterans and former professional athletes. There, there's there's a truth to the idea that when the uniform comes off, whether it's a military uniform or a baseball uniform or a football uniform, um, you sort of lose some of your identity, right? Um, especially with military. You know, we get the whole adage that they break you down in basic training and build you back up, right, into this person who's, who fits into the uniform and everything else. And, you know, when that uniform comes off, um, some part of your identity changes. And it's the same thing with professional athletes. So, what MVP does is takes all those folks and we get together and we do about 30, 45 minute workout together. Um, sweat equity bind, bonds everybody, right? When, you, when you're both crawling through the mud during an assault course, you know, you're picking the guy up next to you, come on, let's go. You know, um, and it's the same thing when, if you've ever played football, you've ever went to, you know, you run in two a days at, at football camp, you know, and, and you're doing sprints back and forth and the guy's puking next to you, come on, man, let's go, let's go. We got to hit this last sprint. You know, there's that camaraderie that builds through sweating together. Um, and also what that does is it just sort of breaks down walls naturally. You know, once you, once you've got the endorphins in a good place and, and your body is, is, is relaxed because you've had a good workout, it's easier to talk to people, right? You've, you've both just kind of gone through this, this whole rigmarole together. And now this person's asking you about your day and you're going to talk to him about it. Um, and you're going to talk about what's on your mind. So you, you get this 35, 30, 45 minute workout in, and then we sit around, uh, on a mat and in, in a big circle and, you know, every, everybody just pours out what's on their mind. You know, it's the first question I ask everybody. How's everybody's week going? What's on your mind this week? What's troubling you? You know, any success stories, any wins you guys got, tell us the wins too. Don't just give us all the bad stuff. Give us the wins, you know, and you just create conversation that way. Um, and you'd be surprised. Like what's, and what makes MVP unique is it's all peer to peer, right? There's no diagnosis. There's no evaluation. There's no test. There's no, there's nobody there to, to sort of pigeonhole you into, oh, you, you have this or you've done that or whatever. It's just somebody with a similar experience having empathy and relating to you 
uh, in a way that makes it easy for you to relate to them. Well, I want to talk about some of the numbers because they're incredible when you look at them. So program participants in seven key cities, you have 2000 plus program participants. Now, in and of itself, it sounds like a lot, but when you start talking about retention of them, them going to multiple things, the numbers grow even more. So you've got members retained annually. 92% of those 2,000 plus members stay in year after year. And high levels of satisfaction, you're at 95%. Uh, just a couple more before we go into it. Program hours, almost 10,000 plus hours of, of time with these guys. Four plus sessions attending, 90%. And high levels of satisfaction are at 90%. So when we talk about multiple engagements, multiple years of being part of the program, those numbers speak so highly of what you guys are doing because you have to be doing it right to have those kind of things. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, it's what happens when you connect with somebody on that level? Um, that, that desire to have that connection, you know, it, it, it's there. It stays strong, right? And you, you don't get it anywhere else unless you come back. Um, and look, you know, I, I tell all of our members, I'm like, I get it. Life gets in the way. If you can't make it this Wednesday, it's fine. Come back next Wednesday. You got to take two weeks off, come back two weeks. You know, it, it, we have a solid core here in Atlanta. And um, while not everybody, I, I don't get the same attendance every single week. I don't get the same people every single week. But I, I get, there's like, you know, a half dozen people who just, you know, come hell or high water, they're not missing MVP. Um, but, you know, uh, it's great that they are all able to to, to take some time uh, for themselves, come get a workout on, and then just you know share with other people about what's going on, and and it becomes so um, you know fulfilling to see that a sixty year old woman has something in common with a with a twenty seven year old male, right? Like they, they laugh together, you know, they they, they talk about each, each other's personal experiences and they're like, Hey, I get you. You know, I got you. You know, I went through the same thing, this, that, and, you know, or somebody's talking about their life. And then, you know, like I said, the six year old woman comes in and says, Oh, you know, listen, it's going to get different. Trust me. You know, and this is what I went through. And there's just so much of that, um, of relating to one another on a very interpersonal level with a lot of gut level communication that, that is hard to replicate anywhere else. You know, it really is. Um, for lack of a better term, like for anybody who's in a happy, healthy marriage, you know, we talk to each all of others like husbands and wives, you know, like spouses and partners, whatever, whatever, you know, uh, the term you want to use is, but you know, we're, we're connected that way that we're reaching each other on that level. So I think that's why you see those numbers of people coming back on a routine basis. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing because when you look at the base of it, you talked about empathy before and that we need more of it. I think with this group and with this organization, you find out that you're a lot more alike than you are different. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's, that's really what it, what it boils down to is that, uh, uh even, even the professional athletes, you know, it, it's a, it's a weird dynamic. It's like, we look up to them, like people in general, like, you know, but military members look up to professional athletes and in a strange way, the professional athletes look up to the military, right? They're like, I can't do what you do. And I'm like, yeah, I can't do what you do. I can't run that fast. Like, I'm not that tall. Like, I can't jump that high. Um, so, you know, but th that's what sort of, you know, that mutual respect and adoration for one another and admiration for one another really uh, connects us and binds us in ways I don't think you see in a lot of other places. And I'm not saying that any other VSO out there doesn't have a purpose or doesn't do great things. They absolutely, I've been part of some of those other VSOs. I've, I've been through their services. I know they do amazing, amazing things, but for us with MVP, it's just about that peer to peer personal connection um, that makes you feel like you're part of a team again. 
I know we've already talked about it a little bit, but I want to talk about the Hazard Ground podcast again. Uh, summer of 2015 is when you started it. You talked to a friend. You gave him this idea. He's on board, helps yep. you get everything together. And then I guess he kind of takes a back seat to it, and you become the voice of it. So let's, let's talk. I, I know that you wanted to tell those stories just like I want to do on here because I think they need to get out there and in front of more people because I think at this time in our history – we are severely lacking in looking at uh, what people are putting on the line every day so that we can live in this country or we can live the lives that we live. So let's talk about you, some of your guests, and uh, what you hope to accomplish with the Hazard Ground. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, like I said, when we started it, um, and, you know, it was born out of an idea, and and my partner um, and so he didn't take a back seat. He never wanted to be behind the microphone. And without him, this thing doesn't get to where it is today. Now, full disclosure, and I, I literally can't say his name at this point. Um, I'll just say he works for the government, uh, and he has had since to leave any association with the hazard ground because of his job within the government. I'm sure he can deduce what I'm talking about. So, But I do want to give him silently, or not so silently, credit because this thing doesn't get to where it is, but he took care of, uh, he made my job so easy. Like he basically handed me prep notes and said, go interview this person. Here they are. And he took care of everything. He made sure it stayed on the air. He made sure the website was up. He, I mean, he did everything. I had ideas and we talked about them, but he was really the locomotive that pulled every single train for a long time. So much so that when he had to depart, not because he wanted to, but it was, it was part of his job. Uh, and, and I hope one day he'll return when he eventually retires. I told him that, the, you know, that he needs to come back at some point. Um, but, uh, you know, I, there is no hazard ground without him, period. Like, it just doesn't get to the level where it is without his diligence, his hard work behind the scenes, his, his constant attention to detail and getting everything right um, for us to be in the position where we are. So, um, you know, he... If he ever hears this, and I'm sure he will, he'll see it at some point in time. Uh, I love you, brother. Uh, you, you're the best. And we were friends for for 25 years. You know, we were in each other's weddings. We were lieutenants on active duty together. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, we started this whole thing. And again, when we started it, DJ, I just wanted to tell great stories. And, and I think we've done that. I, I think we've done that better than any other podcast out there. Obviously, I'm biased, but I've, I've listened to a bunch of other ones. And I think we do a great job of letting the guest tell their story in their words. And, you know, one of the premises is that, you know, if, if you take, you know, pick any Medal of Honor recipient you can think of and you put them on Good Morning America and you ask them, well, what was Afghanistan like? Yeah, you're going to get a very glossed over, you know, cookie cutter answer because they know the people they're talking to don't understand the answer. I don't have that problem. You know, like they, uh, I've walked on the same ground they have. I've been through many similar experiences that they have. They know I understand combat. They know that I understand what happens and what, what happens to your mind and your body and your soul and, and all of that. And, and so I can have a, a really easy conversation with them about it and get it to a place where it's just two of us conversing about whatever went on, like we're just sitting in a bar having a beer next to each other. And I think that's what sort of has made us a little bit new, unique. There were two things that the hazard ground yielded that I'd never expected to happen. Um, and I didn't, I didn't think about it was going to be a byproduct of it when, when we had started. Um, one, uh, we are chronicling history um, in a way that I never thought was possible. Like 
there are kids out there who are now my young twins age who are seven you know years old um in, in 13 years 18 years whatever it's going to be they're going to turn around those seven years are going to say daddy what did you do in the war and they're gonna be able to say go listen to the hazard ground i told my entire story there and it's going to be right there for them forever right like there's there's no reason it won't last in in, in for for history you know, like, I think that's a really cool part. Like, if anybody wants, if you wanted to do research on a guest, you could Google them in Hazard Ground. If they, they've been on our show, you'll get that whole episode. You could find out everything you want from them, not being told by somebody else, not being, you know, uh, bastardized or changed through Hollywood or, you know, a ghostwriter or whatever it is, their words, their story, their point of view. And that's chronicling history. And I never thought about that when we started. Hell, when we started, I thought we were going to run out of guests. I got so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that like we we spent the first six before we released our first episode, we literally spent six months recording them. So we had like 20 episodes in the can um, because we were just so worried we might run out of people who wanted to tell their story. Lord, did we Lord, did I not realize how easy it is to find people who want to tell their story? So um, and now that it's got sort of a, such a cult following, I don't like the word cult following for the hazard ground. But now that it's got such a, a worldwide audience, you know, people come to us and want to tell their story, which I think is amazing. You know, I think it's great. Like somebody wants to, you know, I, I want to share my story. Go ahead, man. We love it. So that's one thing I think the chronicling of history. And then, you know, secondly, the conversation that we have had on the show about mental health, caring for veterans um, and, and transition and all that, that has become a byproduct of the whole thing. So many people have bared their soul about some of their deepest, darkest moments um, on the show. And we've had such incredible conversations about, it. I mean, hell, you know, I mean, I, I don't decide to go tell what happened to me without the hazard round. Like that was one of the ultimate, you know, byproducts of this is that Mark finally decided that, you know what, maybe I need to unpack all this shit that was sitting around for 10, 15 years that I never bothered to address and how is it affecting me now? How is it affecting my relationships? How is it affecting me as a father? Because that ultimately was the impetus of it. You know, one of the guests, his name is Pasha Palanker. You know, he talked about his PTSD and he said something I'll never forget. He said, I just don't want to pass it on to my children. You know, and that was one of the biggest things. And, and, and that hit me like, like, like a baby grand piano falling out of the sky, man. Like it was just like, wait a minute, am I doing that to my children? Am, am I screaming so much? Am I, do I snap that often? that I'm, I'm affecting the way my kids see me. Um, and it was one of those moments that just was such a seminal crystallizing moment for me that really was the first step in me starting to look at all these things. And so that mental health conversation, and I think we do an amazing job at it. Um, and I think we've put some of the best people in the field on the show about it. Uh, and people are willing to share their personal story and their trials and tribulations with everything uh, and their journey for what we've talked about transition, right? Like how they had to figure all this stuff out along the way and all the disaster and all the, the destruction that they may have left um, because of the decisions they made and they're willing to share it. And I can't tell you how many times we get emails from people and saying, you know, I heard that story and that's exactly how I feel. I'm, I'm so glad somebody finally was able to say how I feel, you know, like that to us is like, wow, that's, that's jackpot. That's gold. You know, like, forget monetizing this podcast or making money off like that is everything 
If we can do that, if we if we can connect people like that, on top of it, we get we get dozens of emails from young listeners who are like, uh, because of your podcast, I want to join the military. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, 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 hey, don't don't ruin your life yet. Slow down. Uh, you got you got other options, pal. <laughs> no, I kid. Um, but nonetheless, it's just like you know, hearing that as well. It's like that's awesome, man. You know, the impact that we're having and the way we affect people with this show each week. To me, uh, sometimes I I, for, I, I forget how much we can reach people with what we do. And so those are some of the byproducts of the hazard ground that really have, uh, have been things that I, I didn't expect to see happen when I first started this. Well, I told you I, I'm a fan of it. So I want to wrap up this conversation uh, with talking about kind of the end of your career. Cause you're at that Colonel rank. Now you're currently yeah. assigned. Um, and I want to look back on your career and, and I want to hear what you're proud of, what you wish you could have changed, which we kind of already have talked about, and uh, what you hope to accomplish before you retire. Well, again, I, I think there are two things. Um, one, again, I would go back and be a lieutenant. Or I'd be a better lieutenant, um, not only because I owed it to the people I was in charge of, but I owed it to myself, right? Like, I owed it to myself to approach this with a better attitude and, and, and be a better officer. Um, I'm, I'm sort of sad that it took me five or six years to really get my ass in gear and figure out what kind of leader I wanted to be. Um, and while people may have liked me and I certainly related well to people. And, and I, I, like I said, I always did a good, you could check my OERs. I've I've always done really well. Um, that's, that's not the point. The point is, is that, um, just because you get a good rating doesn't mean you're a good leader. Uh, and, and that's the part honing in that leadership skill, uh, and learning to be a better leader than I already was, um, was, was something that I wish I, I would have grasped earlier on in my career. You know, the other thing too, and, and I've always been bad at this, uh, in realizing that the military and the army in particular are still a business, um, you know, there is a certain amount of understanding how to play the game of business with people, even if you don't like them. Right, even if even if you're not a fan of their decision making, their leadership style, and everything else, I'm not somebody who ever sugarcoats anything. <laughs> I just tell you what I think. I don't give a shit what? if you don't like. Like it's not it's not my your feelings are not my responsibility. Unless we're married or you're my children, your feelings are not my responsibility. Um, so if something I say bothers you, great, tell me about it. I'll apologize. I'm sorry it offends you, but I don't I don't know what to, I, I can't make this better for you. This is how I feel, you know. Um, so in that, you know. Uh, forthright and, and brash sort of uh, sometimes abrasive way of, of just detailing what I think to people. You realize that um, diplomacy sometimes and discretion are the better part of valor, if you will, or at least diplomacy is the better part of valor. Uh, and and I can say this, and I've had this conversation now because I'm dealing with this right now, like I'd love to go to war college. I'd love the opportunity to be looked at for general. Um, it's always in my nature, DJ, to just go for what's next, right? Like, I, I don't know how to not start to stop grasping for more um, in the sense of like, if there's another level, I want to get there. It's just my work ethic. It's just my my desire to be the very best at whatever I'm doing that, that keeps pushing me forward. So I love the opportunity to go be general. Um, there's an argument out there, and I can't say I necessarily disagree with it. Part of the reason why I haven't been sent to war college yet is because, well, I might have rubbed some people the wrong way. I never lied. I never said anything wrong. I just disagree with their decisions. And I told them so openly to their face in a room of people. I, okay. I'm Yes, that person outranked me. Yes, that person, you know, holds a lot more decision markers than I do. 
But I, I always have done what I thought was right. And I always have done what I thought was in the best interest of not only the troops that I was in charge of, the mission overall, the, the in this case, the Georgia National Guard, okay? And, and the oath of office that I took. Like I never, ever put those things second. Ever, 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 ever. So if I'm speaking my mind, it's because I'm doing so, putting those things ahead of what I feel. And that's why I'm speaking it. Now, I've, you know, again, throughout the course of my career and mistakes I've made, I've learned that you kind of, you make your pitch once. When you start doing it twice, you're just, you're being an ass, right? You're, you're whining at that point in time. Have a one-on-one with your superior officer and your boss. And this is what I believe. I believe you're wrong. I believe this is what should happen. And they turn around and say, guess what? When you're in my seat, you can do whatever you want. Right now, we're going to do this. Roger, got it. Move out. You know, that's the end of the conversation. That's the diplomatic way to do that. I've done that sometimes. There are other times I'm like, yo, this is fucking stupid. Okay. You're not, this is, this is wrong. Like what you're doing right now is wrong. It's not okay. And I'm not going to sit here and, and be part of saying it's okay when it's not okay. You get to make the final decision, but I'm telling you, I object. This is wrong. Okay. Uh, and that to a certain extent, that lack of my diplomacy may affect me and, and may make the end of the line where I am. Um, at 06, which I've come to a place, DJ, where, you know what? I'm okay with it. I, I, I really genuinely am. I don't have much more left I need to accomplish in uniform. Um, I, I say it again. I've had an amazing career. I've been so blessed and so fortunate. I'm lucky to have done it this long. Um, and I always knew, and I remember saying this in my my speech when I left battalion command, I told everybody this, and, and I, I've said it routinely ever since I've hit 20 years. You know, I, I said, at some point in time, someone's going to tell everybody you can't wear this uniform anymore, right? Some people make the choice not to wear it, but but everyone else, they're going to tell you after four years, after six years, after 20 years, you can't wear this uniform anymore. And when I, I started thinking about that, like it's unnerving a little bit because my entire adult life has been spent in uniform. I've actually had more years in uniform, more than, more than half of my life has been spent in uniform, Right. Like, it's just the way it is. Like, it, just the sheer math of it. I, I got commissioned at 21. So, um, I, I don't know a life without the uniform on. And that transition sort of does scare the hell out of me because I don't know if I'm not in the military anymore, then who am I? It's been such a part of my life for so long. Um, and I've had to come to the, the, the reality, come to grips with the reality that, yeah. You're, you're on the 18th team, man. Like <laughs> you've got a little bit of time left, you know, hopefully I can extend it as long as they'll let me, but I've always said, and, and, and I've held this and I've told my superiors this, I refuse to stay around and collect a paycheck. The minute the organization sees no more value in me, please, somebody have the balls to tell me I will walk away on my own. As long as I provide value to the organization and the organization provides value to me, I will stay and do the absolute very best job that I can. The minute one of those two things changes, somebody needs to raise their hand and go, whoa, we're not on the same page anymore. And that's totally fair. The problem is not a lot of people in the military have those conversations. It's, it's really weird. It's a weird thing to me how sometimes people in the power position don't want to have uncomfortable conversations. Guess what? Heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? You want to wear that rank, you better be prepared to tell people bad news on a routine basis. I mean, it's, it's just weird. It's a weird thing that we do. Nobody ever wants to sit you down and say, look, you probably need to think about probably doing something else. This career, at least in this part of this military organization, we don't mesh well. You're not, we're not on the same page and, and you're not going to get much farther here. So if you'd like to continue to serve, let's have that conversation about where you can go. But I'm telling you, you're at the end of the line here. That's a fair conversation to have with anybody. It's an adult conversation to have. Unfortunately, at least in the guard, we don't have that conversation enough. 
All that said, I recognize that I am getting to the end of the line, that I am um, going to have a retirement ceremony at some point in time. Uh, and, and, you know, it'll be emotional. It, it really will. You know, it was, it was, it was a very, very, you talk about my proudest moment. Uh, forget the deployment. My simple proudest moment was this. Uh, and it happened earlier this year. You know, uh, I stood there in May of 1999 and had my mother and my, my stepfather put my bars on my uniform uh, and commission me in the United States Army. Almost 23 years later to the day, to the day, in the exact same uniform, I might add. I've kept the same uniform for 20 years. I still fit into it, which is an accomplishment in and of its own. It's a little tight up top now, DJ, but, you know, the, the waistline is still good. Uh, in the same exact uniform, my twin sons put on my colonel rank with my mom, my stepfather standing right behind them. That is the single proudest moment I have in uniform. To be able to complete that circle, to have my kids be able to promote me to what likely is my last rank um, will always be the most special part of this entire journey. Uh, and I, I, you know, they probably won't remember it, you know, three years from now without being shown a picture or whatever, but I have the greatest picture of it. Um, and, and it is something for me that, uh, you know, is fulfillment. You kept talking about fulfillment earlier, like that for me, when that happened, I just, that's when I got to a place where I'm comfortable with it. This is the end. Then it's the end. I didn't need any after that. Everything else on top of that is a complete cherry on top for me. So I am, I'm fortunate and blessed. Uh, I'll spend every last day I have in uniform like I have for the last, you know, I, I don't want to say all 23 years because I kind of told you earlier I sucked at it or I had a bad attitude. But, you know, uh, since that first deployment, you know, that attitude that I've carried forward uh, is the same attitude I carry today where I work my tail off. I work really, really hard and I bring people together and I want, I want people to see what true leadership looks like. And I want them to know that empathy is a big part of leadership, caring about the other individuals, you know, and treating them like, like a human. How are you, man? Like it's it, sometimes we can go beyond the mission and everything else. You doing all right as a family. What do you need? Can I help you with anything? Like just reach out and connect with people. Like it's, and, and at this rank, sometimes I get the chance to do that a little bit more where I can have those conversations because I'm not so laser focused on something that is at the lower level that needs to happen where the rubber meets the road to make a whole bunch of other dominoes fall. You know, I'm at a strategic level now, so it's different. You know, uh, everything well, is I think the view from 30,000 feet is a right. lot better. Yeah, it is. But, you know, there's this nebulous sort of thing out there like, oh, we're going to accomplish this grand thing. And, you know, I'm not actually going to be able to affect anything that actually accomplishes it, but I'm going to say it's going to happen because it's strategic planning. Yeah, uh, welcome. I just gave you War College, by the way, in case you needed it. Uh, anyway, but, you know, so it, it, there is this sense of I want to give back and mentor as much as I can in the last years of my career. Like, that's really all I want to I, I want to spend time with younger officers and, and, and help them and groom them and help them avoid the pitfalls and mistakes that I made younger and realize, you know, what their path is and, and you know, let them know that they, they can choose. You have, you have a lot more say in your military career than you think. It's, you, you can really carve out your own space and do what you want to do. Um, one, if you play the game, like I just talked about a little bit, you play that game a little bit, um, but also if you work really hard and, and, and you're genuine and you show people how much you care and, and, and uh, you're a good leader. I mean, leadership is what this country is lacking at its core right now. Good, genuine, trustworthy leaders who don't have an agenda that is anything internal to themselves. That's what leadership is. And that's where we lack because you know what? It's not about your next election. It's not about, you know, 
winning hearts and minds and, and Twitter followers and Instagram likes and everything. Leadership in and of itself, okay, is about the people. It's about the people you choose to lead and making sure that they understand the why behind what they're doing and you give them the how. Um, and, and, and when you do that, I think you can really accomplish some really, really amazing things. Um, and, and I've been blessed and fortunate to see people who want to run through walls for me, uh, who will do anything for me. Um, and it, it's humbling too. It's like, man, I, I, I love you. Just let, stop. You know, like I, I, I appreciate the effort, but you don't have to go this far, man. Like, you, you know, you, you've, you've, you've done what you needed to do. Let's, let's get somebody else involved here. So, um, you know, I'm kind of rambling here, but it's just like I get in this space where I get sort of nostalgic about my career and, and the fact that it's coming to an end a little bit. And I just, you know, uh, no, I, I hope the very last. It's perfectly understandable. I mean, yeah. this is like you said, this is the twilight when you're getting ready to ride off into the sunset. It's completely understandable. And I think that we're at a time you and I have talked about it in this conversation. We're at a time in our history where this stuff really needs to go forward. Leadership really needs to know because we are severely lacking. And what I worry about is not necessarily the leadership that is going on right now, but if there's no one to teach the leadership, what happens two generations down the road? So they're going to learn is the next generation is going to learn because again, um, you know, and this, this generation of, of combat vets, uh, the, the unfortunate part is that, a lot of us are just tired um, of of having to lead all the time. Like it, it, it's it's not easy, right? Continually being out in front and being on your game nonstop all the time—it's tiring. It's exhausting. You don't get a chance to slip up. You know, you make one mistake, and at least in our case in combat, it could be life and death. But in some of these other cases, you know, there's a lot of other things that a lot of other dominoes that fall that could affect it, and and that's a massive responsibility. Uh, and not everybody wants that. Sometimes you want to be able to just turn that off and just go relax and be a dad or, you know, go go be a soccer coach or a baseball coach or whatever it is and, and not have to worry about that. And I, and I get that. But Believe your, me, that's in the law enforcement world. Yeah. Repeatedly. To, to your point, it's like, who, if we're not doing it, then who is helped molding the next generation of leaders, not only in the military, but in general, you know, who, 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 who where are the leaders who are getting these kids off iPads? And I do it with my own, but like, you know, I get it, man. iPads are great. You know, you get a 30 minute break as a parent, but you know, when you stop getting your kids outside and stop playing with them and connecting with them and leading them, uh, and I'm not talking about leading my kids into, you know, anything serious, but if you're out there doing it with them, it's as simple as, you know, go back to being a Lieutenant, right? Go back to being a B cop. If you're doing it alongside of people, when your Sergeant or your Lieutenant goes in the ride with you, it's a whole different world. Right, it's a whole different game when you when you're down there cleaning toilets with with your private man and you're mopping the floor with them. That's the stuff that they need to see because you're one of them and they're one of you. And 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 that's you know something that we're missing. We have so much you know separation right now uh, between all of us. Uh, the, the only way to bring people together is to do what they do. And so many people don't want to do anything that's not what they want to do. So you know um, it, it's. <sighs> It's it's a concern, but I, I I love leading and I love leadership and 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 it's the one thing you know I say this and I've been doing it for twenty three years now, but um, you know again without being braggadocious, I, I'm an expert. I'm a leadership expert, man. I've been trained. I've been I've been doing it for twenty three years. I'm 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 as I'm as ready as I could ever be um, to to take that job on 
and, and, and help do it with other people. And that's why, again, it's mentorship is such, such my responsibility right now. Download all this information that I have and all this experience that I've gained and give it to somebody else so they can do it and go forward. Well, ending on that, where can people find you? So if they want to get more of this, where can they look you up? get some more other than hazardground.com. They can look up the podcast. I know you're on Instagram, but let's kind of go down the list of where everybody can find everything about you. Sure. Uh, you know, again, hazardground.com, of course, at hazardground on Twitter and at hazardground podcast on Instagram. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can just search Mark Zinno, M-A-R-K-Z-I-N-N-O. You'll find me there. I found LinkedIn is a really good like resource for military folks. Uh, a lot of military yes. folks are on LinkedIn. Um, I agree. And I've been getting, I've actually been getting some really great guests for the show on LinkedIn. Um, they're sneaky, like right? you have to kind of search their profile and look for some of the keywords of what they've done. I'm like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Oh, you tried to drum that up for the civilian world, but I know what you're saying. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm on Instagram at Mark Zeno. I'm on Twitter at Mark Zeno. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Mark Zeno. You'll find me there as well. Uh, so I mean, reach out. Like I, I don't, I love conversations with people. Anybody who listens to this podcast is like, hey, I'd like to hang out with Zeno or talk reach out, man. Like I'm not, uh, as much as I, I, you know, talk for a living and, and dominate the conversation. Like I'm, I'm, I'm ready to listen. If somebody has something they want to say, like, let's, you know, let's, let's have a conversation, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm open to it. I, I think that there, there's so much more. And in all this, I should say this too. I'm still learning a lot of things, right? Like I, I, I you know, in all my, my, uh, bluster, you know, I, I, I neglected to mention that, that there's still a lot I can learn. And that's why I talk to people. I like, you know, my Twitter account is filled with more people who are opposing my political point than agree with. Right? Look, I mean, I think that's it, most people's Twitter account. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't need to live in an echo chamber. Like, I don't need to to, to listen to everybody who thinks like me. Yeah, and it's great. Like, this, this is how broken we are as a country. And I, I didn't. I, it's different now, you know, because you have like these dating sites and everything else, but. Like, there are literally people who are like, if you lean left, don't talk to me. I'm like, when did that become the disclaimer of dating? Like, when, when did we get to a point where, like, if you post your vaccination status, don't talk to me? I'm like, I mean, okay, I, I get what you're saying, but it's just like, okay, I, I have herpes, but I'm not going to put my vaccination status up there. So, right. Like, I don't know what that means. Like, I don't, I don't know when we got to how we got so broken as a country where having a, a viewpoint on the world and on American politics became the automatic i can't date you right, right. I, 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 we that's how broken we are as a country right now uh and, and it's sad um but and, and i say all that to say i don't mind conversation if you disagree with me politically fine i will listen to everything you have to say i want to the only thing i can do by talking to you is be made smarter right and and, and if i don't agree with what you're saying or i don't think there, there's any value to the conversation i'll listen but again it's just it's a data point for me so reach out don't hesitate. Like, honestly, it's a, I enjoy meeting new people. I enjoy conversations. Um, and, and I've been fortunate enough, you know, through my line of work and radio and everything else to be able to interact with a lot of people online. Um, and not all of them are complete a-holes, you know, some of them complete, completely disagree with everything that I stand for, but guess what? There's a normal civil conversation to be had there and there's common ground for everybody. You just, if you don't go into it looking for common ground, you're never going to find it. Yeah. Right? If you don't walk up to somebody looking for common ground, despite whatever you know political leanings you have, whatever personal leanings you have, and everything else, you're never going to be on a middle ground. And that's the other thing too. We've seeded the middle ground in America so much so where we live in this whole: if you're not with me, you're against me. And that's even happening inside their own parties, right? Like 
inside the left and inside the right, there are, well, if you're not with me, you're against me. So you're not a real Republican. You're not a real Democrat. Like we've split factions within the parties. It's going to become the damn Hunger Games before we know it, the way we're trending. Like <laughs> something that's really called Katniss. But, uh, you know. Well, I think what a lot of people are going to take from that is they're going to start looking you up on dating websites. So uh... <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, come find, come find me, please. Uh, I, 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 I think your, uh, your accounts are going to go through the roof now. So, man, Mark, this was such a great conversation. I'm so glad you came on here. I told you I'm a big fan of yours. I, I, I love listening to your show, and I'm, I'm glad you came on and told your story here. Guys, don't forget hazardground.com. You can find him on Instagram. You can find him on Twitter. You can find him at Facebook. And, you know, you can always find me everywhere that I say every week. You can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. But don't forget the number one stop dtdpodcast.net it's audio form it's video form it's pictures of mark it's his own episode page and all the links where you can find him hell we're even thinking about adding his dating sites on there don't forget though once you leave here go to our sponsor at police coffee at policecoffee.com they're an officer owned business they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned their coffee is some of the best you'll find but always remember what we say every week they serve an important cause they get back to our community 50% of their profits goes towards families helping them of police officers who have fell in the line of duty. Remember, when you go to policecoffee.com, DJK10 will get you 10% off your order. Don't forget to go see them. Guys, that's going to be the conversation this week. Thank you so much for coming by, Mark. That's going to be the show. That's Mark. I'm DJ. This has been it. We'll catch you on the next one. See you later. Hey.